Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to episode 12 of the Knowledge Exchange podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of eight future episodes in the series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. My conversation with Billy Allen revealed some very important ideas about knowledge exchange that had not emerged in previous interviews. Her thoughts about bringing various forms of knowledge together and the challenges this entails, the results that can be derived by mandating the inclusion of alternative perspectives, the limits of what one individual can bring to and represent in a complex learning environment, and how the way we are with people in using evidence has as much impact, if not more, than the methods we use to create evidence. These were all very important and powerful comments. However, I was most struck by the wonderful example of lifelong learning she gives near the end of our conversation. I hope it touches you as much as it touched me. I'm here in the offices of the Social Work Department of the University of Toronto on Bloor Street. I'm here with Billy Allen. Billy, why don't you introduce yourself, say a little bit about uh, what you do and um, what you're working on. So I'm a first year PhD student in the Faculty of Social Work. I've come to this program after doing my master's here and having some experience in the field. I identify as a mixed race Anishinaabe way and Anishinaabe woman, and that really centers my interest in being, being here, being in this program, and it centers my orientation to knowledge and the things that I think about when I think about knowledge and how it's created and, and how we use it. My big area of interest in looking at and in, in entering the program that I'm in right now is looking at the education of marginalized students in social work education, their experiences in the social work educating process, how we make them practitioners, and how that reflects what we do as social workers in the field. So social work as a discipline is very oriented to social justice and anti-oppression. So it's my sort of working idea that if we can't deal with social justice and, uh, and practices of anti-oppression, if we can't implement those in the classroom with each other, how are, how are students taking that out into the field? and making that happen with clients. I mean, that's, a, that's very much a fundamental knowledge exchange process, right? How do you engage in this? And we've, and the reason I had asked to do the interview with you is that we've had these conversations about what type of leadership is needed. You know, how do you engage in moving from what you know into what you do? Um, how do you continue the learning process, right? This is a series for the Canadian Council on Learning, which is trying to develop a context in Canada and a culture in Canada for lifelong learning. So let me ask you about knowledge exchange, right? And one of the ways that knowledge exchange is, is described as bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. What does this mean to you? What does it mean to you as a woman, as Anishinaabe, mm-hmm. in, as someone who practices social work? It's a few things. For me, I'm really uncomfortable with the word evidence <laughs> because it just feels really value-laden to me for, in terms of what gets to be constituted as evidence and how how this sort of um, language right now, the very popular language of evidence-based practice, is getting sort of appropriate in different ways, and I, so I, I have a hard time with it. But when I think about knowledge exchange in relation to what I'm doing and to social work practice and to the Aboriginal community, I think about it in terms of sharing, right? Coming together, sharing what we know so that we can do something different. To me, knowledge then is about being co-constructed. It should represent your experience and my experience, and we should be developing it together, not me exercising it on you or you dictating it to me. And 
particularly in social work that addresses this issue of it's very when we talk about any oppressive practice a lot of the time we're talking about cross-cultural practice or how we engage with people who are marked as different from us and when you're taking a sort of structural lens to things a critical lens to things where difference is actually marked in a very value based way in terms of difference from the dominant norm for social work there's this really high responsibility to make sure that people are entering with good intent into the work, that they're doing their best to make sure. I struggle with how we we need, what social workers need in terms of knowledge, because I think a lot of it has to do with actually how you are with people, okay. and less about having 20 articles on cognitive behavioral therapy for depression, right? And being able to read an article, a series of articles, and sort of summarize what they're saying is, is a skill. But I think a lot of what we're doing in terms of how we're interacting with people in social work, whether that's in practice or research, has to be more about those relationships and how we establish them. And then that determines what you can produce, and it determines how it can get used. So, so how do you support those relationships? I mean, one of the challenges, and I agree with you, that knowledge exchange is fundamentally about the relationships. And, and I've had these conversations with people that you actually have to trust the sources and the people that you're interacting with. So, except our institutions and, you know, the various infrastructure and the incentive systems don't necessarily always support the, the types of relationships that would allow you to deal, you know, to deal as a social worker with within the communities that you want to, to, to work in. So, how do you support that? I mean, if, if you had the support that you needed, what would that look like? Yes, in some ways, for instance, there's very practical and real examples. One is around, for instance, doing research in social work with Aboriginal communities and a real struggle around protocol in terms of offering tobacco versus offering an honorarium and how ethics committees deal with that. Those really sort of real tangible issues about the coming together between different ideas of how you engage. And I think I think there's an increasing acceptance of, of um, an Aboriginal worldview and an Aboriginal approach to research and that's opening up. So there's there's ways that I see it becoming practical in that way. I think in social work practice the idea of supporting those relationships is often undermined by the agency and the the mandate of the agency. So working in a hospital structure where you're really trying to get services for your client or help them to, to navigate what they need to get through because you know whether it's themselves or their family that has this health issue that's created and imbalance or crisis in their life, how do you help them navigate? And often that's complicated by the fact that the hospital wants the bed emptied, the hospital wants them gone in 30 days, the hospital wants them to sign XYZ, you know, form, agree to this, agree to that, pay this, pay that. So I think the support around those relationships is shifting, you know, shifting in the practice how social work is situated in agencies, you know, and obviously a hospital is a huge system, a huge institution in that uh, social work on the ladder of, of hierarchy and, and disciplines falls pretty low, so there's not a lot of speaking up that happens. But I, I see those that overlay of, of institutional values and agendas that affects it. So I think there, to have that support means you would have that time that your profession would be valued, that the idea that we can use our specific skills and social workers looking at a person in a context and environment, that those have value and that we can take our time with it because it's really become a sped up process and I see social work becoming progressively more of an agent of social control versus social change so how you resist that and I think it's about having time it's about 
those relationships being valued by the institutions or agencies that you're in. And then really at the end of the day, social workers individually have to value it because you can. You can try and in your own individual practice change it by making that space for your client. You know, given the, the, your experience and given the, you know, this path that you're on, I mean, we've talked a little bit that there's some barriers and challenges that you're encountering. And are they particular to the discipline? Or are they particular to you as a woman? Are they particular to you as you know, how you identify? In the process of lifelong learning, how supportive is an institution like the one that you're at for someone that identifies the way that you do? I think that there's certainly... Um a real push in academia to bring in people that weren't traditionally admitted in large numbers to try and offer support for politely called diverse categories of people. Uh, I can address, I'll address the Aboriginal piece first. I think that there's certainly this wanting to bring Aboriginal people into the academy and to have this presence, but I think the reality and how it's really taken up, whether or not um, an alternative, an alternative worldview alternative epistemologies, research methods are the extent to which they're really accepted and supported is still not clear and easy and I think that's a hard thing to navigate because there's so much it's such a complex environment, academia in terms of trying to position yourself for whatever you you need to get through because the reality too is as PhD students most often we're financially vulnerable so we have to find work to get through the program and finding work you're trying to establish and maintain relationships with people so it's hard to uh, to navigate it so I think in some ways it's supportive but I, I feel there's a real challenge for me in terms of trying to put forward Aboriginal ideas and knowledge and have them accepted seen as legitimate equal to more traditional social theories and research methodologies I see that as a big challenge that I can't turn away from but that is it's challenge it's difficult it's really difficult I think as a woman particularly as a woman with children it's a very hard thing I mean I feel like we're trying to attain an image of you know ideal doctoral student that doesn't you know that ideally most people wouldn't be doing this with children because it it's it's insanity the amount of work I've actually had pretty good accommodation here for that I just think the challenge is you know, the, the socioeconomic challenges, the, the challenges of how you manage your time are real. I think to the ex- I think there's at least an opening and awareness that these issues go on in students' lives and there's some attempt there to be supportive. I guess overall for the biggest challenge for me is just this idea of, of knowledge, what is knowledge, and being confronted by, which I didn't completely expect, I guess, that knowledge is being defined in certain ways and how you share knowledge, how you develop it and disseminate it is better if you do it in you know these given ways and that's a hard thing right so if if you could imagine an environment that was more supportive for including aboriginal knowledge and how people learn i mean this this whole process around lifelong learning is that you know the people will learn over the the entire course of their life what's the best way to support the inclusion of aboriginal knowledge in this process where people are learning how to engineer, how to design, how to plan cities, how to govern. What needs to be done alternatively? How would you include this, you know, this other way of knowing or this this particular worldview? I think, you know, there's different ways that it it gets taken up. Ryerson, a while back, it's been several years now, hired an Aboriginal faculty member who, you know, as part of her tremendous work and contribution there designed an Aboriginal worldviews course, Aboriginal you know perspectives in social work, which has now become a mandatory 
course for all social work students, right? So you're mandating this idea and you're really implanting this idea of specific knowledge and a context that people are existing in in this country that everyone, you know, is in. And I think that sends a message about the value. People will argue about the extent to which that is real or not real, how how much a university is actually valuing by putting that course there. I, as an, as an Aboriginal student, would have been immensely pleased to have that course and to see it as, as mandatory because it gives some recognition, some credence and respect to what's there and what can be offered. I think in this context, I feel like I feel like if I'm going to say, here is an Aboriginal way of looking at things, and this is what shapes how I approach things. Am I helping my community? Am I honoring that tradition and family? Am I considering balance? Am I looking at things? And then I'm on the hook to account for, to account for it and to back it up and to fill it in. When really I'm learning that too. You know, that's part of my learning too. I'm not a cultural expert. I don't carry every teaching, every nation that makes up the entire Aboriginal community. And I think that's a hard thing. Like I, in my second week, I you know said here's a here's an Aboriginal perspective on things and I'm having a hard time making sense of it in relation to these articles. I was sort of pushed to, you know, explain that further and justify it and that's a a hard position to be in because I'm not, I think it's a hard thing for Aboriginal students and I'm sure you could generalize it to, you know, other uh, students um, in terms of feeling like you're the expert in a knowledge that you're still learning or that you're the cultural expert for your entire community regardless of how diverse that community is and so... You know, here recently they hired a cross-appointed faculty from social work and um, Aboriginal studies. So at least you you feel like you have someone that represents, that you can see that reflection, that you can approach who presumably has faced similar issues, you know, in, in going through their education. So that's helpful. I think it would be about if you come to me and you say, I, I want to do this, I want to try this, and I don't know, instead of saying, you know, well, but this is how we do things here. It might be about... Here are the people that we have available, you know, in our faculty, in our university that are working on this and I think could really help you. Let's see how we can help you find a program of study that's going to work for you. And I guess the reality with PhD's programs is they're really student-driven. It's your own individual education. You're accountable for it. To think about how you can support students that are so invested in having...